I was reading a devotion yesterday, and it said that Hudson Taylor would always interview prospective missionaries before they would come to his country, and he would always ask them the same question. And the question was, what, why are you coming? Why do you feel like the Lord's called you here? And many times the young men would say something like, well, the Bible commands us to reach the lost. And then another time, uh, another popular answer was, uh, I, I just feel like there's untold uh, millions of people and it's my responsibility to tell them. And he would always tell them at that point when those were the answers given, that's not enough to keep you in the hard times. The only thing that will make you stay is the love of Jesus. A love for Jesus, his real, a realization of His undying love for us, and a return of that love for Him. And so, um, praise the Lord for the love of Christ. Thank you for the song, ladies. I'll say that those three ladies right there worked diligently to be able to prepare and present Vision Night this evening. I want to thank them specifically for all the hard work they put in for it. And then I want to thank all of our staff for having a hand in uh, getting the building and the facilities ready. You would not imagine how hard it is to build, paint, and hang six wooden arrows. Amen. So praise the Lord for our staff. I'm thankful for them. Genesis chapter number 47. We pick up our story kind of in the middle of it. Uh, If you're familiar at all with the story of Joseph, you know he's kind of had some ups and downs. Uh, His brothers sold him into slavery. He then found himself as a second in charge of a pretty wealthy household, Potiphar's house. And then uh, Potiphar's wife had a crush on him and she lied about him and uh, slighted his character. He found himself in the prison and then he met a butler and a baker and he interpreted some dreams for them. Just so happened that the butler's uh, dream, uh, just like Joseph had said, came to pass and and the butler was restored to Pharaoh's house and he became Pharaoh's butler once again. You know probably the story I'm referring to, but the butler forgets about Joseph. And even Joseph said before he left, hey, remember me. I mean, I'm the one telling you your dreams. Remember that I'm down here and I'm not down here for any real reason I was lying about. You just remember me and you kind of tell my case to Pharaoh. Uh, Two years pass before the butler remembers it. And the only reason he remembers Joseph is because one night Pharaoh has a dream two dreams specifically, and uh, Pharaoh comes out and he pulls all the wise men and all the people that should be able to give him an answer on what this dream means. He pulls them all in and he says, what does this dream mean? None of them could give an answer. Joseph came in and gave him an answer right away and told him not only what the dream's interpretation was, but the dreams themselves. So it's kind of a great story, and, and the dreams were essentially prophesying or predicting that Egypt was about to endure seven really prosperous years. Seven years of plenty. But right on the heels of that, they would experience seven years of famine. And Joseph's advice was this to Pharaoh. Hey, Pharaoh, you know it's coming. God has established this and he's going to make it to pass soon. So if I were you, I would pick out somebody really wise and somebody that could store up during the years of of plenty so that in the years of famine, you would have enough for the whole land of Egypt. 
And then I love it because Pharaoh's like, well, where could I find such a man as this? And Joseph's kind of probably down there like, I don't don't know, Pharaoh. Uh, But, you know, obvious right in front of him. And, And sure enough, Pharaoh employs Joseph at an extremely important position. And that position is to make sure that in the seven years of plenty the land of Egypt was about to experience, Joseph would be saving up enough so that at the end of the drought years or the famine years, everybody would be able to survive. And we pick up right in the changeover from the seven years of plenty to now the seven years of famine. And you're about to see what the people, just the everyday commoner of Egypt, and not only Egypt, but also Canaan, were experiencing. Verse number 13 of Genesis 47, the Bible says, And there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very sore. So the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan fainted by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the corn which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came unto Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in thy presence? For the money faileth. And Joseph said, Give your cattle, and I will give you for your cattle if money fail." And they brought their cattle unto Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for horses and for the flocks and for the cattle of the herds and for the asses. And he fed them with bread for all their their cattle for that year. When that year was ended, they came unto him the second year and said unto him, We will not hide it from my Lord, how that our money is spent. My Lord also hath our herds of cattle There is not aught left in the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our lands. This famine had been very taxing for the land. And and I believe that they actually had stored up. I think that many of the folks had actually prepared a little bit because of the years of plenty. And yet we're probably about two years, three years, uh, at least several years into the famine. And they're coming to Joseph and they're, they're saying, we just don't have anything. We've given you our money for our corn one entire year, or for for supply one entire year. Then we gave you our cattle for another year of supply. Now the only thing left we have to our name is our land and our bodies. We pick up in verse number 19. Wherefore shall we die before thine eyes, both we and our land? Buy us in our land for bread, and we in our land will be servants unto Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land be not desolate. And Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For the Egyptians sold every man his field, because the famine prevailed over them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he removed them to cities from one end of the border of Egypt, even to the other end thereof. Only the land of the priests bought he not, for the priests had a portion assigned them of Pharaoh, and did eat their portion which Pharaoh gave them. Wherefore they sold not their lands. Then Joseph said unto the people, Behold, I have bought you this day in your land for Pharaoh. Lo, here is seed for you, and ye shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the increase that ye shall give the fifth part unto Pharaoh, 
and four parts shall be your own, for seed of the field, and for your food, and for them of your households, and for the food of your little ones. And they said, Thou hast saved our lives. Let us find grace in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt unto that day, uh, unto this day, that Pharaoh should have the fifth part, except the land of the priests only, which became not Pharaoh's. Let us pray. Father, please bless in the few t- moments that we have this morning. Help me understand and directly uh, preach and speak the word of God, that it would be not confusing, that it would pre- be presented in a clear manner. Lord, I pray that you would help every distraction in the room to be removed and help folks to focus in on what God's Word has for them this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Life is full of surprises. Things that just kind of reach up and grab you. Things that catch you off guard. Life is full of them. I'll never forget, I had gone to watch Cody Sears play in a basketball tournament one Christmas break. And... uh, It was just me. I drove down to Godley High School, and I'm sure Cody won that night. I'm sure he got MVP of the tournament. I'm sure he got homecoming king, voted that same night. I mean, Cody's a pretty good guy. And uh, after the tournament was over, I came out to my pickup truck. Now, at that time, me and my sister had driven the same truck. She had driven it before me, obviously. I was now driving her uh, hand-me-down, and it's a beautiful truck. It's a 1996 Dodge Ram. You could hear it from 917 all the way to Godley High School when Mandy was driving it anyway. But, um, it, I mean, it, had, it was loud. It was an attractive truck, and so I was driving that now. And, And even though I had my keys on me, one thing that we always left in the toolbox, my dad had just always left a spare in that particular toolbox, and we carried that on through. Mandy had that spare in there, and I just kept that spare in there. And I'll never forget coming outside, and um, when I had gotten to the parking lot, it was pretty full, so I had to kind of park uh, ways away from the school there. And uh, where I parked, there wasn't much lighting, so I go ahead and I get in the truck, I open the door, I shut the uh, door behind me, and I'm getting ready to crank the truck, and I feel someone put something to my head and say, freeze! A man's character is tried at that moment. You don't really know how you'll react. I mean, think about it. You may say, well, I would obviously freeze. And that seems logical, but my reaction was altogether different. You see, I called every amount of kung fu knowledge that I had ever had. See, I took one class. uh, I went with Brother Luke Taylor, and I took one class of karate. I had seen some Bruce Lee movies, and I'd seen a lot more Jackie Chan movies, and I watched the blooper scene, so I know what not to do, okay? And so I, I summon every bit of martial arts expertise in my mind, and I began to just flail uncontrollably at this person that is in my back seat. Now, the reaction that I got was quite different because I figured maybe I would hear a gun go off or, or, or maybe somebody would then like, you know, strangle me even tighter. But no, this person erupts into laughter. I looked back to find that my sister had used the key that she knew was in my toolbox. She got in my back seat only to scare me half to death. Thank the Lord for siblings. Amen. They teach us patience, if nothing else. 
And I, I also remember the day that uh, we, me and my wife find out that we were pregnant with our, our third child. Life is full of surprises. You know, when you're having to act like you're happy. I'm not a very good actor. My wife's good at it. But Oh, as if life's not hectic enough. Let's have a third one, right? We still have two in diapers. How many can we fit in diapers? Amen. We can just use Bailey's diapers. We'll just tighten them with ratchet straps around the newborn. Amen. Life is full of surprises. And these are good surprises, you know, the fun surprises of life. But the reality is there's a lot of surprises that aren't as enjoyable. See, life's full of surprises. Remember, you remember a day or a week that you've had that kind of went something like this? You had a really important meeting to get to at work. I mean, you needed to be there right on time. You go outside and you crank your car only to realize that the car ain't got no crank. And you begin to diagnose it and you find out that you need a new battery. So you start to do some research and you go down to AutoZone and and you tell them the make and model of your car and you give them the VIN number and they say, oh, well, that battery is a unique battery. We don't have that battery in stock. You see, most cars use a, a battery with just two terminals on them, a positive and a negative. But lucky you, you have one with three terminals on it. We don't even know when they started or stopped making those. But your car happens to be one of those. Well, awesome. I'm glad I knew about that. And then they say, well, we're going to have to order that battery for you. And since they're so rare, they're a little bit more expensive. And you say, oh, great. I love spending exorbitant amounts of money on stuff that I really don't care about. And then you begin to check your banking account only to realize that little Timmy's dental appointment last week cost you a lot more than you thought it was going to cost you. And you realize that you don't have the money to buy this very expensive battery and you still got to get to work on time. How many of y'all have ever had a week like that? Yeah, yeah, I've been there before. Life is full of surprises. And sometimes the surprises are life-changing. You know, the surprise when everything seems to be going fine, you have plenty of money in the bank account and the work's going just like you would like it to. And then all of a sudden, one phone call changes everything. When on the other end of the line, you hear a voice say, there's been an accident. See, life is full of surprises. And and, and what we're studying this morning is famine. And a famine in our life represents any moment in time where we don't have the answer for the situation. You see, famine in the Bible just represents times without resource. And there's times in life that rise up that you don't have the answer, you don't have the knowledge, you don't have the expertise, and you can't read enough self-help books to get the answer. Those are times of famine in the Christian life. But in our passage and in life, we learn things and famines that we cannot learn in times of plenty. Let's take a look at what surprises we'll find in a famine. Number one, the first surprise we find in a famine is this. Famine. (laughs) Or for the purpose of alliteration, droughts. You see, droughts are not scheduled events. In our case, in this particular passage, it didn't catch Joseph or Pharaoh off guard, but nobody else knew about this. It was just, it it happened on the calendar. They didn't recognize that it was coming up. Droughts just happen spontaneously in life. 
You don't schedule them. You don't plan for them. Droughts just occur. The Bible tells us in, in verse number uh, 13, I believe it is, that the drought was very sore in the land. But in droughts, we find that there is an absence of resource. The Bible says uh, in, verse number, in chapter number 47, verse 13, and there was no bread in all the land. That's what happens in droughts, right? Your resources began to vanish. The, the well that was so reliable for so long begins to dry up. The field that is produced for so long and, and so many years in a row, that field just does not grow. That is, by definition, a famine. And this resource begins to relinquish. This resource is no longer present. There is an absence of resource. That's what a drought is. And in the Bible, there's all sorts of situations where people have an absence of resource. How would you have liked to have been Job? As everything seems to be going fine, life's just cruising right along, and what happens? One day, a famine hits, right? Maybe not a literal famine, but an actual uh, spiritual famine. Where time after time, someone comes to him and says, Job, something's gone wrong. Job, you wouldn't believe the problem that just occurred. And Job just sits there taking one blow after another blow after another blow. That is a famine. How would you have liked to have been Moses at the Red Sea? When all those Israelites are sitting there screaming at Moses, Moses, this is your fault. Moses, we should have never followed you. And you're looking at Pharaoh's army pursuing behind you. And you're looking in front of you. And all you have is a big Red Sea that you can't cross. You've got at least two million Jews with you. And you're thinking, what am I going to do? That's a famine. You're out of resource. You're out of answers. That's what occurs in a drought. How would you have liked to have been David as you were once the, the one in Israel that everybody was singing your praises. Oh, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And, and everybody was happy that you had slain the giant. And, and everybody was so proud of you. You're the next anointed king of Israel. But all of a sudden, the king that is becomes a little, a little jealous of the king that will be. And he begins to chase you and pursue after your life. And you're no longer living in the palace. You're no longer playing the harp at the foot of the throne. But now you find yourself living in cave and hopping from cave to cave to cave just trying to stay alive. That's a famine. And famines occur in everyone's life. There's an absence of resources. We don't always know why they occur. We don't ever know when they occur. But famine is coming. It comes to all of us. And the Lord promises this. He says, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. No matter how smart we think we are, no matter how wise we think we are, or how spiritual we think we are, famine will happen in all of our lives. There's an absence of resources in droughts, but notice this, there's an abandonment of riches in droughts. Verse number 15, I want you to see this, don't miss this point. The Bible uses an interesting phrase here in verse 15, it says, And when money failed in the land of Egypt. 
Now, I believe what that means is everybody ran out of money. They had bought so much corn for so much and they had kind of persevered as long as they could. They were just out of money. But I do think that there is another application that we as Christians can see. Money will fail in certain situations. And we can have a big bank account, but there's just things money cannot buy. There's certain things that money cannot restore. And not only was it just money, but they had brought money. They had brought their possessions, their herds, their cattle, their horses. They had even given them lands and themselves. And yet they were just trying to meet the need that really mattered, which was surviving. There's just some things that money and possessions seem important at times, but there's other times you couldn't care less about them. I guess it was about two years ago now, my dad called me and he told me that my little niece, Abby, was on the way to the hospital. We hear that kind of stuff often and we kind of become numb to it, but then he told me that she's unresponsive and she's not showing any signs of life. That kind of strikes you when your little niece, just a cute little girl, and you you think, but how did this happen all of a sudden? And at that moment... If all six of the Wolfenbarger children had put all of their money together, which my portion would have been significantly less than many of my other siblings' portion if we were just extrapolating it out per capita, amen? But, but, but uh, if we had pulled all of our monies together, there is no amount of money that could have solved the problem at hand. And there are times when that occurs for all of us where, sure, we might rely on checking accounts in certain situations. And, yeah, we might enjoy certain things, uh, uh, possessions of sorts. But there's times when neither of these will bring fulfillment or pleasure or answers. And it's in the drought times that we see these things. Not only are droughts surprising, but I want you to see the demands are surprising. What I find interesting in this passage is just because a drought exists in their life does not mean they are free from responsibility. That's the way it is in your life. You see, a problem occurs at home. It's not like the responsibilities at work go away. You still got to be the same employee that you've been Monday through Friday for all those years, no matter what's going on in real life. That's the way droughts are. Droughts are surprising, but the demands in the droughts are just as surprising. We'll notice in verse number 21 that there were, well, there were three different uh, responsibilities or demands placed upon them. Number one in verse 21, that they transfer. This is a strange thing, but the Bible says, And as for the people, Joseph removed them to cities from one end of the borders of Egypt, even to the other end thereof. You see, the people had sold their lands to Pharaoh in exchange for, uh, for supply of food. And so Joseph takes them from their land to cities. A little deeper study into this will help us realize that the initial plan of Joseph was to store all of the grain in the cities. And I actually believe that during this time, during these seven years of plenty, Joseph was building up the infrastructure of these cities so that the people from the country could all move in and be taken care of in the city. Uh, and, and that's interesting for me because you say, well, Brother Andrew, that's so sad they had to move from their home. Yeah, but what good is a home where there is no resource? 
What good is a home that there is nothing to sustain life? And Joseph moves them out of their homes into these cities. It reminds me that in times of drought, Christians ought to really focus on what's important in life. Sure, homes are nice. Yeah, sure, cars are nice. But what really matters in times of drought is not the things that you have. A man's life consists not of the things that he possesses, the Bible says. It also helps me think that as a Christian, we get saved. We have to learn that this home is not what really matters here on this earth. At the moment of salvation, we're given a new address. We become citizens of a new country. The Bible says about Abraham that he followed God and he was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. Sure, Abraham traveled all over this world, but he never considered it his home. My friend, droughts will occur in your life, but it's in times of drought that we ought to realize no matter what we go through in this world, we have a home that is free of pain and sorrow and struggle. There's a home laid up for us beyond the blue. The Bible says uh, man's man's days on earth are few and full of trouble. That's not the way heaven's going to be. They were asked to transfer. They were not only asked to transfer, but they were told to toil. Notice in verse number 23. Then Joseph said unto the people, Behold, I have bought you this day and your land for Pharaoh. Lo, here is seed for you, and ye shall sow the land. Now find this interesting that he's moved them out of the country into the cities where there is a resource for them to live. There's supply for them to live. There's obviously water. There's obviously food. But he says, hey, in this time, it's not time to quit. You're going to do what you've always done. You're going to go plow. You're going to go plant. You're going to make sure that the land produces. And that ought to be a lesson to us that when the droughts of life set in, it is not time to step back. What I see just from this side of ministry I see people who start to go through trouble and we immediately withdraw from all forms of service. That's not the case in this situation. That wasn't the case in Paul's life as he had learned how to abound and how to be abased. And yet he was still serving and he was still loving people. When we are in the middle of our drought, that is not time to remove ourselves from all responsibility. We still need to work because Jesus said, the night cometh where no man can work. I must work the works of him that sent me whilst it is day for the night cometh when no man can work. They were told to toil. And I think it's cool that even though they were serving, they were no longer serving the land for themselves. They were serving it for a new boss. Never forget, it was my freshman year at West Coast Baptist College and I had gone through and maybe kind of pulled my roommates and some of the guys in my dorm and I was asking them what teachers or professors I should take for certain classes you know because some professors just aren't very good or interesting or engaging and I wanted the best of all worlds and so I had my schedule there and they're like oh yeah you need to take this person you need to take this person and everybody that I asked said if you're taking freshman English you need to get Miss Butterfield and so I was like, I'm getting Miss Butterfield. And so I, I, I decide to go in, I make my schedule. Sure enough, Miss Butterfield, I'm in her class. And I'm thankful that it wasn't full or anything. I got Miss Butterfield. 
I show up to class on the very first day, and there's about 80, uh, 80 people in my class, and is in this uh, modular building, so the room was not very big, and there was it was really standing room only in the classroom, and so they come into class the very first day, and Miss Butterfield gets behind the little lectern there, and she says, "If your name, if I read your name, stand up." She reads all these names. Amy, were you in that class with me? Okay, so before me and Amy even knew each other, we were in that class. How cute is that? But but we were in this class together. And show you how blessed or lucky Amy is. She reads this list of names. And W, obviously, I think I'm good. And then at the very end, and Andrew Wolfenbarger. I've been called last for everything in my life but jury duty. Somehow I got called first on that. But either way, uh, uh, Andrew Wolfenbarger, stand up. So I'm like, maybe I won a prize or something. Maybe they're giving us ice cream because the class is too full. We'll kind of take it in shifts, you know. They'll have Miss Butterfield one day. We'll get her the next day. We'll all just have this English party and we'll have a lot of fun. And they said... The class filled up larger than we were expecting, so everybody that is currently standing, you're going to go take English with Brother Williams. I didn't know Brother Williams. None of my roommates or anybody in the school had mentioned Brother Williams as an English teacher. In fact, he wasn't even an option as an English teacher at that time. So we go into another room and we follow Brother Williams in. I, didn't, I did not even know what he looked like at the time. And he walks in, and from the moment he walks in the room, I can tell he's military. Now, I'm not saying anything bad about military, but this guy was military through and through. I mean, he still had the haircut. Like, after you leave the military, you can do whatever you want with your hair. Did you know that? He still had the haircut. He still walked like he was in the military. Come to find out, he was some type of super ranger, ninja, crash course, black lightning, thunder kind of, you know, awesome guy. I don't really know what his ranking or designation was, but he was a stud. But everything he did carried over into that. I mean, he was rigid. He wasn't very engaging. You know, it's kind of like, and this is a gerund. You know, like, it just wasn't real interesting. I struggled. And then he was so rigid, he just stayed on his schedule. You know, that day, I took the same course. I just had a different boss. Amy sitting over there in the other class. Oh, Miss Butterfield. Oh, you're just so enlightening. I'm just tuned in the whole time. She laughs and makes jokes. I was afraid my guy at any moment could go and kill me with a straw, okay? It's just the type of boss you have. And the way you work, really, you can be doing the same thing, but the boss you have matters. Hey, before we got saved, you had a boss. The Bible says before we got saved, we walked according to the prince and the power of this world. Oh, we had a boss. We, we were subject to the passions and the lusts of the flesh. We had a boss. But praise God, when we got saved, we got a new boss. One that says, uh, one that loved us so much that he gave himself for us. You see, he is so good to us and that's who we work for. So in the middle of your drought, Don't remove service because your boss ain't changed. He's just as good as he was when the drought wasn't going on. He's still the same boss. He's worth serving. They were made to transfer. They were made to toil. And then thirdly, 
I don't want to offend anybody, and please don't tune me out right away, but they were made to tithe. Notice in verse number 24, I'm not making this up. And it shall come to pass in the increase that ye shall give the fifth part unto Pharaoh. I'm not good at math. I almost failed that English class I mentioned earlier. But I do believe that one-fifth of something is 20%. And these people were instructed to give not 10%, but 20%. I think I'm reading that right. And then the Bible tells us in verse 26... And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt unto this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth part or 20%. You mean to tell me that Joseph is being so hard-nosed? You mean to tell me that he is being so just, just unmerciful that everybody's going through hard times, everybody's tight, everybody's struggling to make ends meet, and you mean to tell me that Joseph's going to make a law that everybody has to give 20%? I mean, what is this, tax? I mean, this is just not right. I will draw your attention to the fact that the land was no longer theirs. So my question is, what happened to the other 80%? Well, it's interesting that you should ask that vicariously through me, but verse number 24, the Bible says this, "...shall come to pass in the increase that you shall give the fifth part unto Pharaoh, and four parts shall be..." What are the next two words there? "...your own." Now, let me ask you, who owns the land? Pharaoh. Who are they servants of? Pharaoh. Whose seed are they putting in the ground? Pharaoh. And yet they get 80% to enjoy? It sounds to me like that's a pretty good deal. Oh, sure, they have to work. They've always had to work. That's never changed. They plow the same fields. They put the same work in. But at the end of the day, they don't put money in the seed. They don't put money in the... They aren't their own. They're not their boss. They're serving Pharaoh with Pharaoh's seed. And yet Pharaoh, through Joseph, says, you can keep 80% to yourself. To use it to enjoy. To live off of. And by the way, don't you think it took a little faith to actually put the seed in the ground? Hey, by the way, seven years of drought occurred. And Joseph's instructions say, hey, I need you to take this seed and put it in the ground. You know what I said? Well, Joseph, we ain't had no rain for six years. I'm not going to put any seed in the ground. No, but you're not the boss. Hey, in times of drought, we ought to always be faithful. I don't understand why we become lesser Christians in times of struggle. It is in those moments in in the Bible, and I can show you story after story, that it is in the times of famine in the Christian life that we clearest see God's provision for us. Oftentimes we remove ourselves from places of responsibility, and God can't work through us in those situations. So we see the first surprise is the drought itself. They come as a surprise to us all. You don't plan for droughts. They hit you out of the blue. The second thing that we see is the demands that still lay on the individuals during the drought. 
the demands. They still had to work. They still had to serve. They still had to tithe. That never removed from off of them. And here, after all of this situation, here's the third surprise. The delight. Verse number 25. I don't know if you read this the way I read it. You would think that after selling, well, spending all the money they had to Joseph... Then they ran out of money. I mean, they are flat broke. Then they bring all of their cattle, all their horses, anything of value, all their material possessions, they bring to Joseph and they say, this is all we have now. Joseph gives them food. And then they say, we don't have anything else. All we have is the land that we own and our bodies, our service. We'll be the servants of Pharaoh. If you buy us, we'll serve Pharaoh. And if you buy our land, it'll be yours. They are flat broke. They have nothing to speak of. And Joseph now has put this this 20% tax on them, if you will. Verse 25, here is the attitude that they had. And they said, Thou hast saved our lives. Let us find grace in the sight of of, of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. As I was reading through this, it seemed an odd answer at the time. I mean, you think about it, Joseph now has taken everything from them. They don't have any type of land, they don't have any type of herds, they don't have any money. They are solely reliant upon Joseph to provide for them. And then when you begin to consider... That when Joseph tells them about this tax, tells them about the work situation, they look at him and I would feel like in my soul at least, given the situation, there might be a little bit of resentment towards Joseph. And and maybe that's just me, but I would think, man, I don't have anything anymore. I used to be a landowner. I used to have a herd. I used to have at least some little nest egg and now I have nothing. It's all Joseph's. And yet their response is, thou hast saved us. Can you imagine what a famine must have been like to these people? Imagine just the one little Egyptian household out on the prairie, if you will. Just out in the middle of nowhere. Oh, they have maybe a field or two that they tend. They usually have just enough herds to sell, to buy the seed, to go into the ground the next year. They have maybe one well out back that provides just enough water for their small family. They they tend these fields and they've been plenteous the last seven years. Seven years, man, these fields have produced. Man, all their cattle have have calved and and it's just been a successful seven years. But now the drought's hit. Now the, the field's not growing. They've put the same amount of work in, it's just not growing. Every day they go to the well and every bucket they bring up has less and less water until the final buckets are just dirt. You're out in the middle of nowhere, and I know this goes without saying, no electricity. Uh, Egypt, an arid environment, no air conditioning. It's surprising, right? You're out in the middle of nowhere and you come to Joseph You've already come to him once and said, Joseph, we don't have much money, but we'll give you the money that we have. We need to survive. And Joseph says, okay, I have enough for you. 
You go home, you survive just a little bit longer, you have to go back to them and say, Joseph, we don't have many cattle. We just have a small herd. Many of them have probably already died because of the drought. Joseph, we're dependent on you. We'll give you all of our cattle if you'll give us food for another year. Just says, okay, I'll do that. Then you come back and say, Joseph, our farm's really not that much. It's not like prime real estate. There's only one or two small fields that our very small family works. Joseph, we don't have much, but if you'll take it and you'll help us, We'll give you our land and we'll give you our service if you'll give us enough food. At every stop along the way, Joseph was the answer for them. The whole time. And now Joseph says, hey, you're going to have a home to live in. You're going to have a place to serve. You're going to have meaning. You're going to have purpose. And better than that, I'm going to give you 80% of the increase for you to enjoy. It's all yours. Now, the land's not yours. You get the increase. The, the field's not yours. You get the increase. The seed's not yours. You get the increase. 80% of it. You just keep it. And by the way, the whole time, the reason that everybody is able to survive is because Joseph had been keeping 20% back in the years of plenty. He's just continuing to do what he's always done. At every stop along the way, it was Joseph's mercy that allowed people to survive. And they look at him and they say, I don't care if I have anything. I'm alive. What good is cattle if I'm not alive? What good is land if I'm not there to live on it? What good is a home if I'm not there to enjoy it? What good, is, what good is this world if my family's not in it? Thou hast saved us. It's at times of drought where we find out what really matters in life. It's in times of drought where we begin to find out the real worth of our salvation. You see, for the Christian, we realize that there is nothing that can happen to us in this world that can harm our standing in the next world. See, the Bible says that, that, yeah, our days down here are full of trouble, but the Bible says up there we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Down here we may not be anything. In fact, the Bible in 1 Peter calls us strangers and pilgrims. We're just passing through. But up there we're sons of the Most High God. You see, at every stop along the way, the Christian's answer in drought is always God. Always. It doesn't change anything. Years of plenty, here's the problem. In years of plenty, we don't rely on God like we do in the years of drought. I love watching the news, not specifically any other portion, but the, the meteorologist time of, you know, the segment of the day where he begins to predict the weather. How many of you enjoy how reliable and how good of a science that has become? We were in North Carolina just a few weeks ago, and while we were up there, the weather was really nice. It was like 60 degrees every day, and we're looking on our phones at the Texas forecast, and at one point, our phones were saying 22 degrees in Dallas-Fort Worth and 100% of snow, or 100% chance of snow. I'm no expert in math. I've already admitted that to you. But what do you think a 100% chance is? I would suspect that a 100% chance of snow means there is no chance that we do not get snow. And yet, when we get home, 
It got cold. It didn't touch 22. And I still have not seen a snowflake. I love how predictable weather forecasting has become. And this is what I love. They always do this segment, you know, they keep it creative and they have the little green screen thing and they're dancing back and forth. And then they come to the five-day forecast. I'm just hoping they can tell me what the weather's doing today. I'm not at all dependent on what they can tell me the weather's doing in five days from now. If you can just tell me enough information so that I know whether to wear a hoodie or a parka out today, I'll be good. Don't you act like you even think you know what's happening Saturday. The five-day forecast. Look, I cannot forecast your future, but I am telling you now that there are famines in every Christian's life. And I don't know if it's five days from now or five months from now or five years from now. There's a chance that you will go through a famine where you don't have the answer, where you don't have the supply or the resource. But would to God we would have a drought-type view all the time. One that says, God, I know it's years of plenty right now. Everything at the job's going great. Oh, the kids, they just, they love me. They're not back-talking anymore. I mean, this is just, life is going great. Would to God in those moments we could view life the same way we're able to in drought times? Because it's in drought times we learn what's really important. It's in drought times we learn we're not in control. It's in drought times we learn there's still purpose and meaning to living for God. 